Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Friday series with James Jordan as he walks through the book of Romans, and today he's going to be in chapters 6 and 7. We were made aware recently that there was a delay with getting our podcast onto Apple and the Apple podcast platform from our podcast host, SoundCloud, but it looks like the last few episodes have been published and restored, so we appreciate your patience on that. If you would like a practical way to support this podcast and get it in front of more listeners, we would love for you to take a few moments and leave us a rating and a review. That goes a long way in bumping us up in the ratings and will help more and more listeners find and appreciate the Theopolitan vision and Theopolitan approach to Bible, liturgy, and culture. So we invite you to do that, and we really thank you so much for taking the time to do so. And as always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of instruction. And here is James Jordan discussing the book of Romans, chapters 6 and 7. Tonight we will book all the way through chapter 6 and 7. Remember now that Paul pushes our sin problem all the way back to Adam. says that Adam's sin was put on all of us with the result that we died and out of our death comes disobedience. We didn't look at precise detail at that argument, but that's basically what we would have come to if we had taken more time in Romans. God puts us under death and out of our death nature comes sin. We speak of a sin nature, but it would be more accurate to speak of a death nature. And our death nature produces sin. If we had a chalkboard up here, we could do this. We could say, Adam's sin, and then the death, which is the judgment of Adam's sin, and then our sins, which flow out of that death. Now, how are we saved? Jesus' death paying the penalty, our resurrection life, and the new life that flows out of that life. So we are given the judicial penalty of death. We're born dead. We are conceived in death and iniquity. That's one reason we practice infant baptism is because we believe that children are born dead, dead to God. We all start off dead, and then God makes us alive and out of that resurrection life comes obedience to the law. The law does not come in until after we're resurrected. If you put the law in before that time, you wind up distorting the purpose of the law. And that's been one of Paul's themes right along. God declares us righteous, gives us a life nature, a resurrection life nature, and then out of that life nature comes obedience. So we're in Jesus, and we have life and rule in him. Now, Paul is going to make an application of those two things. He's going to say, we have resurrection life, and we have dominion over our lives. We can take charge of our lives and not let our lives sit around in sin, because we have life and rule. Chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
We've died to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into union with Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ, the anointed one, was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, surely we shall also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old person was crucified with him, that our sin body might be nullified, and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we certainly also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, another dense passage, and we won't look at this in quite as much detail as we have before. His point is... We were put into Jesus at our baptism. And Jesus died. And the reason death is so important in the plan of God, the reason death takes care of sin, is that death destroys sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. All of our sins were put on him. And when he died, that destroyed sin. When he comes to life again, we come to life with him so he says, just think about it now. If our sins have been destroyed in Jesus Christ, if we are free from that old life, then why should we live that way? Now, the contradiction, the horrible thing is, we do tend to live that way still because we are in between being resurrected and being resurrected. We've had a preliminary resurrection. We have a final resurrection left to look forward to. But he says, reckon that you're dead to sin. Consider but you don't have to sin. When sin says, come here, that's what sin does. It says, come here. Don't you want to sin? Don't you want to do what's wrong? Don't you want to disobey? Don't you want to sneak that cookie? Don't you want to be bad? Then you say, no. And that's that. And you can say no because Jesus has been raised. I love microphones. I'm not the only one who does. Now, he says that baptism is a picture of this. Not that we go down underwater and come back up because people weren't even buried that way in the ancient world. They were buried in the sides of hills and caves and tombs. But that baptism signifies being united to Christ. Baptism is water that comes down from above where Jesus is and links us up with him. And it links us up with his death, so we get the benefits of his death. And it links us up with his burial, so that we're dead, our old person is dead. And it links us up with his resurrection, so now we have life. So instead of a death nature and a death body being inside of us, and a sin body and a death body inside of us that is causing us to sin... And we can't do much about it because we don't have any grace. Now we have essentially 
The true you is a life body down inside, a life nature, a resurrection life nature, linked up with the power of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, as he will say in chapter 8. And out of that can come obedience to the law. That's where the law is going to come in. Now, continuing in chapter 6, verse 12. Therefore, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Now, let me say a word here about the body. When you read about the body in the Bible, sometimes it primarily means this. But we use the word body to speak of the body politic, and the Bible implies that as well. When you get married, the woman says that she will obey the husband. The husband says, with my body, I thee worship. I know you don't say that in your ritual, but that's the old ritual. And what it means is, with my entire estate, I will serve you. Now, that's the swap out, you see. If the wife is going to obey this guy, which is kind of dangerous and scary to think about, then the guy has to say, everything I have, I will use to serve you. Now, that makes it even. Okay. Sometimes we talk a lot about submissive wives, and we don't talk enough about the fact that husbands are slaves to provide for their wives. With my body, with my estate, with everything I am and have, I will worship you, which is the old word for I will serve you. I will put it all at your disposal. Now, when he says here, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, it's not just that sin is in my body. Sin is in my life. Sin is in my house. Sin is in what I do. Sin is in my job. Sin is in my thought life. Sin is in my hand life. Sin is in my foot life. In the Bible, you circumcise the four horns of the human body. The four horns of the man's body. Does anybody remember from two years ago what the four horns of the altar of the human body are? I know you don't want to say them out loud. The male reproductive organ, the earlobe of the right ear, the right thumb, and the right toe. And those are the four things that are circumcised, okay? Everything you hear and think about, everything you do, and every place you go. Those are the three outflows of fundamental circumcision in the Old Testament, in the law. Now, when he says your body, it doesn't mean in some strange way that sin is physical down inside this skin stuff, you know. Human beings are plastic bags full of blood, okay? You cut this plastic bag here and blood comes out, right? We are all plastic bags and we have blood inside of us. Now, he's not saying that there is sin down inside of there, but he's saying in the whole body of your life, what you do, your body politic, what you're in charge of, how you treat other people, the sphere of your life, the body of your life, don't let sin reign in that that you should obey its lusts. Why? Because in Christ, we not only have life, we have rule. We not only have bread, we have wine. We're not only priests, we're kings. We not only get to eat the tree of life, we get to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and of rule and authority. And so now we can say to our body, to our life, to our habits, to our workplace, I don't have to sin around you anymore. I'm in charge here, and the true me is in Christ. And so I don't have to sin. Just don't have to. Verse 13. He says, Don't go on presenting the parts of your body to sin 
as weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and the parts of your body as weapons of righteousness to God. Okay, your body has lots of parts. It has these physical parts like hands and other parts of your body, but also another part of your body is your bank account. Another part of your body is your property. Whatever you have and own, whatever's part of you. Don't take those individual things and use them for sin. And you don't have to because you have power. You have rule. And you're resurrected, so you don't have to do that anymore. Verse 14. Sin shall not be master over you because you're not under law. You're under grace. What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Now, what's this not under law but under grace stuff? Up till now, he's talked about, you know, the works of the law and the works of faith. But now he's contrasting law and grace. And this is a little bit broader. And what he has led to thus far and what he says in Galatians and other places is basically this. When we were little kids, God gave the law to keep us in line. And God gave the law through angels, and angels used animals to teach us what was what. The angels put animals in the garden. Adam learned from the animals what he was supposed to have, a wife. Then God sent another animal in the garden so Adam could learn not to eat of the tree of knowledge. But he didn't learn that right. He put animals in the sacrificial system for us to learn from. He gives us animals in Proverbs for us to learn from. He gives us three animal faces on the cherubim for the Old Testament for us to learn from. He gives us the dietary laws and he explains all these different features of animals for us to learn from. And the fact of the matter is that animals precede human beings in the world. They don't precede human beings by billions of years, but they precede human beings by a couple of centuries. The reason is animals reproduce a lot faster than people do. And so when Noah came off the ark, within about 20 years there were two or three more people in the world and there were several thousand more animals in the world. And the animals multiply and they go out into the world first. And so wherever people went, they found animals had gotten there first. And you know what the animals had done? The animals had found out which foods were poisonous and which foods were edible. And so we could learn that from them. And the animals had made little roads and trails that led down to the water. And so all we had to do was follow the trails that the animals had made, and they would lead us to water. And so animals come first, and animals teach us things when we're young. Isn't that great? Go to the animals and learn from the animals. Well, that's right. That's the old creation. That's the beginning of the world. Angels run the world and angels teach us through animals and angels use the law. Paul says the law was given through angels. Stephen says the law was given through angels. Now, however, we're grown up in Christ and in that sense we're free from the law. We rule. Instead of the law ruling us, we rule using the law. We are not under the law as a child. We are, in a sense, over the law, but under Christ. And the law is no longer over us, telling us what to do in that sense. And I know you just have to kind of imagine this analogy, because in practice, in a sense, we do look to what God says and do it. But considered as law, just as a separate thing, the law is not over us telling us what to do. Instead, Christ is over us. We're in law to Christ, and we look at the law, and we use it to exercise dominion. And Paul says, well, if that's true, maybe we can just change the law. 
Maybe we can just decide, since we're in charge, that we can sin. And maybe now it's okay to commit adultery. Paul says, are you crazy? What then? Shall we sin because we're no longer under the law, but we're over it and under Christ? Can we change the law? And he says, are you nuts? May it never be. If you change the law, if you fool around with it, the only reason is because you're in sin. If you love Christ, you'll want to do the law. Even if you're no longer under it, you'll want to do it. And if you don't want to do it, you aren't saved. Now, let me just read to you Galatians where Paul makes this same point because he expands on it there and rapidement we'll just run through it. Galatians 3.23 and following. Galatians 3.23 Before the faith came, before Jesus came, in other words, we... We Jews were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith that was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law became our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But now that the faith has come, the new covenant has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The law as schoolmaster is no longer over us. For you Gentiles are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female. For you Gentiles are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you Gentiles belong to the anointed one, the Messiah, then you Gentiles are Abraham's seed according to the promise. See, this is very similar to what we've already looked at. And now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, even though he is potentially the owner of everything. But he is under, under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we Jews, while we Jews were children, were held in bondage under the fundamental principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, under the guardians, under the managers, under the child master, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, under the guardians, under the managers, under the angels, under the schoolmaster, that we Jews might receive adoptions as sons. And because you Gentiles are also sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, both Jew and Gentile, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you Gentiles are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you Gentiles did not know God, you Gentiles were slaves to those which by nature are not gods at all. But now that you Gentiles have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you Gentiles turn back again to the weak and worthless fundamental principles of the world to which you Gentiles desire to be enslaved all over again? You started observing days and months and seasons and years as if you were Old Testament Jews. I'm afraid for you Gentiles that perhaps I've labored over you Gentiles in vain. Now, what's he saying? He's saying that there is an old creation and a new creation. The old creation is the elementary fundamental principles of the world. Nothing wrong with it. In the old creation, angels were in charge. Angels were our schoolmasters. Angels used the law, which is good and perfect and righteous. They used it as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And we were under the law in that sense. Now, he says, we Jews and Gentiles are grown up. 
We're no longer under the elementary foundational principles of the world. We're living in the age to come. We're living in the new creation. We're living in eschatological time. We're living in the future. We're living in the resurrection. We're in charge of angels now. So the angels are no longer ruling us by the law, and we are no longer under the law as a schoolmaster. But we are under Christ. We are in law to Christ. And as such, because we love Christ, we keep the law. Now, practically speaking, it boils down to the same thing. If you're under the angels, and the angels say, Thou shalt not commit adultery, or you're going to be spanked, you don't commit adultery. Now that we live in the resurrection world, in the new world, we're not under the law anymore. We're under Christ. And Christ says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And the law says, Don't commit adultery. And if you do commit adultery, you'll be spanked. So it comes out the same place. You still don't get to commit adultery. But it's a difference of approach. We're not under the law and under angels. Now we're under Christ and we have a higher privilege. Back in those days we did not rule. We were ruled by the angels. Now we do rule. We have greater power, greater strength, and we rule. And we can rule ourselves. And that's his point here. You're in charge of yourself. Keep yourself in line. Do it, or you'll be spanked. Let's read this again. Shall we sin, because we're not under the law, but under grace? Are you nuts? Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, you'll get back under death again if you do this, or of obedience resulting in righteousness and faithfulness to God? Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You became slaves of covenantal faithfulness. You were bonded in to God. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, the weakness of the old condition that's still with us. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, remember Romans 1, the more we sin, the more God gives us over to it. Now present your members as slaves to righteousness, slaves to covenant faithfulness. Present the parts of your body, everything, dedicate everything in your life. Remember that little pamphlet, My Heart, Christ's Home? You know, every room in your house has to belong to Jesus. Well, that's right. Present the parts of your life as slaves to God, bonded into Him through covenant loyalty and faithfulness and righteousness, which results in becoming holy. For when you were slaves of sin, then you were free in regard to righteousness, in regard to having a good relationship with God. You didn't have any peace with God? Yeah, you were free, free from God, free from happiness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? The outcome of these things is death. You have a death nature, you commit sin, and those sins lead to more death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in holiness, resulting in integrity, sanctification. You acquire integrity. Holiness in the Bible basically means integrity which is inner integrity in your relationships and integrity in yourself. And the outcome of that is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in the anointed Savior who is our Lord. 
Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, Jews, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. And after you die, you can't obey the law anymore. The married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. If her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So if then, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So he's saying widows can remarry. And if you get a divorce and the divorce is pronounced just by the church and the church pronounces one party judicially dead, then you are a judicial widow or widower and you're free to remarry as well. But he is just throwing this in to make the point that as long as a wife is married to a husband or a husband is married to a wife, as long as they're alive, you can't have another husband or wife. But if your spouse dies then that bond, that relationship is gone, and you can bond in with somebody else. Now, he is not going to make an allegory of that to the gospel, all right? He's just going to say, the principle, death breaks the bond. What he does not say, now, we were married to the law, the law died, and then Christ came along and we married him. That's not what he says. He says in verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die. So we're the ones who die. We died to the law through the body of Christ that we might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So we died. This is a little bit complicated. But the whole point is we had this relationship with the law. The law was our husband. It was over us. See? And husbands are over wives. So the law was our husband, and we were under it, and we were bonded into the law through the angels. Now, what died? The law didn't die. We died. We died in Christ. And that was the end of that relationship with the law. That snapped that covenant string. Now, there's no covenant string between us. See, covenants are strings. You have a red string between you and your spouse, a bunch of yellow strings down to your kids, absolutely white rainbow string up to the three persons of God, and you have purple strings out to various friends, brown strings to your boss. We have strings, okay? Covenant strings. Some are stronger than others. If a string breaks, we don't really notice it. Some strings, if they break, we grieve and mourn. We had a string connecting us to the law. It was a rubber band. We try to get away from the law, and we get snapped back. But now it's gone because we died. Now we came back to life again, and, well, suddenly we get a string with Jesus, and we're married to somebody else. That's the picture. We died and came back to life again. The law is still there, but it's no longer our husband. It's our tool. We are no longer under law. We are over law, and we use the law as a tool. Let me explain something to you. In the Old Testament, the angels used the law as a tool to train us up. Right? Do I have a witness? The angels used the law as a tool to train us. Angels rule the world. Now who rules the world? You do. God does always rule the world. Now Jesus rules the world, and with Jesus... We rule the world because we're his wife. We sit right next to him on the throne. We rule the world. And what do we use to shape the world up? The same tool. You see, we now are the angels 
who use the law to shape the world up. Angels use the tool of the law to shape us up until Christ came. Now we're under Christ. We use the good tool of the law to shape the world up and to shape ourselves up because there's still a big part of me that wants to do wrong. And so I have to use the law on myself. The law is like a whip and I have to go beat myself with it and then I have to beat you with it too. (laughs) Because I use the law to rule the world. The Bible says we will judge angels. We're going to use the law to judge angels at the end just like they use the law to judge us. Is this coming clear to you now what under law versus being in Christ means? So, we died, we came to life again and now we are over the law. And we're going to use the law to beat ourselves up and shape ourselves up because we're the angels. Look at the book of Revelation. The pastors of the churches are called angels. We're the angels now. The New Testament says women are supposed to have power on their head for the angels' sake. Angels there means the pastors of the church, the elders of the church. Many references to angels in the New Testament are referring to us because we're now the rulers of this world. Okay. Verse 5 says, While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions that are aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bring forth death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that to which we were bound, that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So we're not under the law anymore. We're under the Spirit. But we're using the law, and to use the law right means we judge ourselves by it. So the standard doesn't change. It's just our position that has changed. Now, we've got to finish this up. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Are you nuts? On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, that is a quotation from the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments doesn't say, you shall not covet. The Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, says, you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. And Paul doesn't quote, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and stuff. He just says you shall not covet because he is referring back to Genesis 2 and 3, to original sin where Adam and Eve coveted that banana that they weren't allowed to have or whatever it was, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the original covet. And that's what Paul's referring back to. And he says, no matter what sin you're guilty of, It boils down to stealing God's fruit, and the law tells you about it. So the law is good, and you can use the law to search your heart. Verse 8, But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, not just coveting that one fruit, but coveting everything, coveting to murder, coveting to make idols, coveting to be mean, coveting to gossip, all the stuff that's listed back there in Romans 1. Apart from the law, sin is dead. The law stirs up sin. We discussed that earlier. Once upon a time, I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. The law should have shown us how to live, but instead, because of our death nature down inside of ourselves, We rebelled against it. Every time the law came, the more we saw about God, the more we rebelled, and the more dead we became. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. It's sin that causes us to misuse the law 
And we rebelled against the law every time we did it, and we got worse and worse. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now Paul is going to say three things about the contradictions in the Christian life. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Are you nuts? Rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandments sin might become utterly sinful. Did the law kill me? No, sin used the law to kill me. Now he says, I'm going to use the law to kill the bad parts of me. <laughs> and that's okay, because we need to put to death the bad parts of ourselves, and now we can use the law to put to death the bad parts of ourselves. There are four misinterpretations of what I'm about to read. Let me read it to you. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm not doing what I'd like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that indwells me. Then he says it again. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Then he says it again. I find a principle that when I want to do good, evil jumps up inside of me. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, in the parts of my life, waging war with the inner law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this death body? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I find myself with my mind and serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Four misinterpretations of this passage. Number one is to say that this describes the psychology of the unregenerate man. That's nonsense. Unregenerate man couldn't care less about doing what's right. He doesn't experience this contradiction. So forget about that interpretation. The second is to say that this describes the person who is in the process of becoming a Christian. And once you become a Christian, you ought not to experience this contradiction at all. That's wrong. The third misinterpretation is that this is the way Christians ought to be all the time. If you're a spiritual Christian, you are constantly aware of this struggle. Every day you're aware of this struggle. You're just schizophrenic from having this struggle all the time, every day. Well, that's not true. That's not supposed to be the Christian life, all the time experiencing this. The fourth misinterpretation is that this is a description of a carnal Christian, but once you receive the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, you move beyond Romans 7 and into Romans 8. All four of those are wrong. I'm here to tell you the right interpretation. The right interpretation is... Paul, when he talks about I this and I that, he's just personalizing because this is an experience that we sometimes have. But what he's doing is he is setting out the fundamental contradiction of the Christian life because we live in between the first resurrection and the second resurrection. So he is describing a state of affairs that is true for the Christian. And sometimes you will feel this way when God is working on you, and sometimes you won't feel this way. Sometimes you'll just be having a good time sinning and you won't feel any contradiction at all. And sometimes you'll be enjoying the fellowship of God and you won't feel any contradiction at all. But what Paul is doing here is he is describing the contradictory life of the saint. 
And this is true of you and it's true of me. And he does it three times. And very quickly, the tension in the Christian life has a normative aspect, a dispositional aspect, and a situational aspect. There is a contradiction because of the law. There's a contradiction because of our motivations. And there is a contradiction because of the situation that we're in. The contradiction that's in the law is that the law is good, but the law seems to be bound up in making us do bad things sometimes. The contradiction in our motivation is that part of me wants to do what's right, and part of me wants to do what's wrong. And the contradiction in my situation is that I've been resurrected in the inner man, but I haven't been resurrected in the outer man. That there is the church, which is a community that helps me do right, but there's still a world that's trying to make me do wrong. Now, these are the three dimensions of the Christian. You know, this is how the Bible sets out ethics. There's the father dimension, which is my personal motivation, the son dimension, which is the law dimension, and the spirit dimension, which is the situational dimension. And that's all I can say about that. I can't give you the whole Trinitarian grid here. You just get John Frame's thing on goal, motive, and standard, on law, motivation, and situation. Those are the three dimensions of the world. And John Frame's literature on the book table is there for that reason. All I want to do is run through these verses again and show you that that's how Paul is setting it out. Verses 14 to 17 deal with the law and the problem there. He says, we know that the law has to do with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives the law. But I am not of flesh. I'm sold into bondage to sin. That which I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm practicing what I do not want to do. I'm agreeing with the very thing I hate. So he starts off, A, each one of these sections has four points, and they are parallel. Let me just give this to you. I wish I had a chalkboard, then we could do it real quick. But I know some of you are taking notes. I want you to be able to get it. Okay, section 1 is verses 14 to 17. That's the problem with the law. A is verse 14, and that is the problem of indwelling sin. B is verse 15, which is the contradictory life of the Spirit. C is verse 16, which is the comfort of the gospel. And D is verse 17, which isolates sin from me. So A, verse 14, we know the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. So my problem is I'm not responding to the law the right way. B, the contradictory life of the saint, verse 15, what I'm doing I don't understand for I'm practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Contradiction. Schizophrenia. Christian schizophrenia. C is the comfort, verse 16. Well, now look, if I do the very thing I don't want to do, then I'm agreeing with the law that it's good. So I'm on the law's side. At least the fact that I've got this contradiction means that I love the law. Even though I want to sin, I love the law because I can see that it's good. I'm agreeing with it, so that comforts me. And D, so I can separate myself from the sin tendency, isolation of sin. Verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin who dwells in me. I'm not the one doing it, but somehow or other there's a part of me called sin that's doing it, but it's not the real me. That's if we analyze the law and how we relate to the law. Now, secondly, verses 18 to 20 deal with my attitude, my motivation, my disposition. A, B, C, and D. A is verse 18. 
This is the problem. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing, my motivation, the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. So my problem is I want to do right, but I can't. It's not the law. It's my desire. Verse 18, that's the problem. Verse 19 is B, gives us the contradictions. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. Schizophrenia again. C and D are both in verse 20. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, then I'm not the one doing it anymore, but sin who dwells in me. So that's my comfort and the isolation of sin. The true me wants to do right. Sin is a problem that I can beat down by claiming the resurrection, using the law to scourge myself, mortifying the flesh, and living to righteousness. Finally, number three, and we're done. Number three is the situational problem. Verses 21 to 25. A, in verse 21, describes the problem. I find then the law or principle that when I want to do good, evil is present in me. Now, sometimes that's very real. You ever notice that, you know, you really decide to make an effort in your life to shape something up, and you feel as if all of a sudden this volcano of bad attitudes suddenly appears in your life? It seems as if when we set ourselves to do something good, that's exactly when evil pops up the worst. Well, he says there's a situation here. Evil is present in my situation when I want to do good. So we've got the problem of evil being present with me. That's the situational problem. Okay, the law, my motivation, I wish to do good, and now the presence of evil in the situation. B is verses 22 and 23, describes the contradiction. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, in my checking account, in my estate, waging war with the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. How ridiculous. The mind of the head should judge the body. The head should rule the body. I should use the law to rule my members. But they're revolting against me. When you were an adolescent men, you know what it means for members of your body to revolt and do what they want to do. And this is true in all kinds of other ways. That's just a real convenient illustration. So we've got the contradiction and the problem here. Verse 24 gives us the, well, cries out for the comfort. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this death body? Is there something in my body that's giving me death all the time? Who will set me free? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the comfort. The comfort is Jesus has set me free from the death that's running around in all of my members. So I can beat it down. And so then finally, D, which is the second half of verse 25, is D, the isolation of the sin problem from me. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So I've got this contradiction. Do you see, if you took it down and you can study it, you can make just a little chart. The law problem, the motivation problem, the evil in the situation problem, and Paul deals with each one 
in four steps parallel to one another, and I'm not going over it again. It's on the tape, and you can listen to it if you didn't get it down. If you didn't take it down, it's your problem. You're supposed to be taking notes. If you don't have a good enough attitude to take notes when I give these lectures, it's your problem. But I do want to make one other point. Paul is describing here that everywhere he turns, he finds death. Everywhere he turns, he's got this problem. I look here, and God, is death coming over me. Oh, no, there's death attacking me. Death is raging in my members. It's striking me. It's hitting me. It's beating me up. It's attacking me. It's sticking knives into me. What does that remind you of? Well, it should remind you of all the laws of uncleanness in Leviticus 7 through 15. Every time you turn around, you're unclean. And what is uncleanness? Ceremonial death. And death spreads to all men. So, if you have a baby, you're unclean. If you sleep with your partner, you're unclean. If you have these issues, you're unclean. If you get white spots on your skin, you're unclean. If you eat pigs, you're unclean. If you eat shrimp, you're unclean. If you eat a roach, you're unclean. Now, I know you kids are out there eating roaches every time you can, but in the Old Testament, you couldn't eat those roaches. So, you're unclean. Every time you turn around, you're getting unclean. If somebody died... You're unclean. If you go out to war and fight a battle and kill people, it makes you unclean. You're unclean for a week. Can't go home. The members of your body were constantly ministering death to you. And the people that you were in contact with would minister death to you. And everywhere you turned, death was coming up. But we're not under those laws anymore because the angels are no longer telling us to do that kind of thing. But the same principle is still there because in our lives there are things that seduce us to death, bring us death, and bring us sin. Paul says, the true me is in Christ and I can fight those things by putting them to death and living a resurrected life. Tomorrow morning in Romans 8, we'll see a lot more about this, but I think we should close now. Let's end in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can look at our lives and understand what's going on. When we see the problems that we are tempted to sin by all the aspects of our lives, help us to remember that the central core of our lives has been made new in you and that we have the power now to fight these things down as long as we trust and rely on you to give us the resurrection strength to do it. Now bless us as we have family time and fun around the campfire and as we rest tonight as we sleep. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.